My parents are on the front row. They can attest to this. My mom has been trying to teach me what an inside voice is for 32 years, and I still have absolutely no idea what she's talking about. I have two volumes, loud and louder. Which would you prefer? Good, <laughs> good morning, good morning, River in the Hills Church. How are we doing this morning? If you would turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. The title of my message this morning, as you can see on the screen, is Strengthen What Remains. For those of you that brought your 3D glasses to church this morning, it still says Strengthen What Remains. <laughs> Revelation 3, verse 1. It'll be up on the screen. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. This is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars, the one to whom we were singing this morning. I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly, as unexpected as a thief. Yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word, which is a sword that comes from your mouth. It is sharp and it is two-edged, and it divides between soul and spirit, bone and marrow. We thank you for the scalpel of your word. God, we ask today that it would find good soil in our hearts, beginning here with me, Jesus. Spirit of slumber, get out in Jesus' name. Spirit of distraction, get out in Jesus' name. We choose to say in this moment that we have eyes to see ears to hear, and a heart that is ready to receive what you are saying to your church this morning. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Over 10 years ago, the region of Austin experienced one of the most devastating events that she's ever seen, the Bastrop fires. It was the single most damaging fire that this area has ever seen, and Bastrop is actually still recovering to this day thanks in no small part to the recent fires that happened this last week. Texas endured its most severe single-year drought since the 1950s, received the lowest single-year rainfall since 1895, and experienced the hottest June through August of any U.S. state at any point at any time on record, which exceeded that of even the Dust Bowl of the 1930s. Circumstances were further exacerbated by Tropical Storm Lee, which produced strong winds over the Labor Day weekend, creating ideal conditions for the wildfires to spread. I want to take a look at a video real quick. 
805 now. This weekend marks 10 years since the deadly Bastrop Complex fire. 32,000 acres were destroyed and two people died, all in the blaze that lasted 55 days. KXN's Eric Henriksen takes a closer look at the scars left behind and what's being done to restore what was lost. This fire made its own lightning. It made its own wind. It was a storm inside of a storm. 10 years ago, Michelle Bird was one of the many volunteer firefighters on the front lines as the Bastrop Complex fire tore through her community. I told somebody, I said, as long as I'm in a fire truck fighting fire, I feel confident that everything's gonna be okay. I felt like, I guess at the time, I had some kind of control, not so much. She lived in the Tahitian Village neighborhood. And when I pulled up in my driveway, it was raining fire. I'm a firefighter. I had a metal roof. I had my trees cut back. I had my yard mowed. But none of that does any good when the fire is coming from above and sideways and from under. It was too late. A decade later, the scars still jut out of the landscape. Blackened reminders of that terrible week. For a good 20, 30 years, we maybe still would call it in the restoration phase. Bastrop State Park Superintendent Jamie Creasy. And this is along the creek, so those areas did not burn as intensely. While much of the park was devastated by the wildfires, other parts were saved thanks to prescribed burns that happened just weeks before the fire broke out. We had a, a mosaic of a landscape from a lower intensity burn up to a really high intensity burn where we had that moonscape feel where there was, you know, no organic matter left in the park. 96% of the state park was damaged, but restoration began immediately with the team working on efforts inside and outside the park. Today, pine trees and grasses have been replanted in more than 4,000 acres, and wildlife is slowly returning. But erosion is still a problem, with several trails still in need of repairs before reopening. We would work on the trail, we would have a big rainfall event, it would wash everything out again. Jamie says that fully restoring the Lost Pines forest could take 70 years. I knew it would be a kind of a, a work of love of, of restoring this forest that, um, you know, I may not fully see in my lifetime. In Bastrop, Eric Henriksen, KXAN News. All right. Just wanted to make sure I wanted to give it a second shot. Despite the losses that you saw in that picture, there were things that survived. They showed one of them, the area of the forest that had experienced what they call it a prescribed burn, which is where they go in and they burn out the dead underbrush that's already, already present so that it doesn't get caught up in a fire. What you may not have seen uh, or made note of when you were watching that was the other thing that survived were the concrete foundations underneath people's homes. So while the house on top of it was gone, the concrete foundation upon which it sat remained. A few weeks ago, Pastor Glenn sent out an email to all of us on staff asking each of us if we felt that God had given any of us a word for the church. Over the few days that followed, a phrase began to echo inside of my spirit. I believe that it's a word for each of us individually, for this house, corporately, and even for the larger body of Christ here in America. Now, I was pretty sure that this phrase was in the Bible. I wasn't confident. I was like, I'm fairly confident I've heard this somewhere in the Bible, but I wasn't sure where. So I was pleasantly, pleasantly surprised to find, for one, that it was in the Bible, that I wasn't just hearing heresy rolling around in my brain. That's always a good confirmation. 
But secondly, I was pleased to find that it was in the book of Revelation. Now, this is important because as we were preparing for the Ask the Pastor Sunday, we remarked in staff meeting that so many of your questions had to do with the end times. Can I just say, it is an honor to serve a house that cares about the return of the Lord and wants to know how to prepare herself for that day. So when I found this verse in that book, the revelation of Jesus Christ, I was like, okay, that's definitely the Lord. As a staff, we have felt this hunger. And so I want to continue to offer more insight for you because Pastor Glenn, Pastor Kyle, Pastor Nate have all preached words that have integral roles in the return of the Lord. First of all, we are going to be worshiping at the throne for all of eternity. The judge's table or judgment seat is where we will all stand one day. And until all of Israel comes to know Jesus, he will not return. So my, what I feel like God has laid on, on my heart is not disconnected from those three messages. It is just a, the fourth part in a series as we prepare this year for what God is going to do in our midst. Much like the fires in Bastrop, I believe that there are things in the Big C Church that have survived the fires of the last two years. And many of those things are present here in River in the Hills. So this morning, I want to take a look at what has remained, and more importantly, how to galvanize these areas as we continue to become the glorious and the victorious bride that Christ is coming back to marry. So let's dig into this passage of Scripture and what instruction it gives us on the how of strengthening those areas that have passed through the fire and been found pure. My main idea this morning, and if you leave here with nothing else, is this. Our strength is found in our steadfast simplicity. Our strength is found in our steadfast simplicity. It's not about becoming complicated. It's also not about big effort for a short span of time. It's about the little things that we do day in and day out, regardless of whether or not our emotions are came before, during, or after, or not at all. Our strength is in our steadfast simplicity. So, what is this steadfast simplicity? Well, it's simple. The first thing that we do, and it comes straight from this passage, is to recognize. We recognize. Verse 2, wake up. Strengthen what little remains. For even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. I want to show you another video of a clip from a movie that so captures this idea of recognizing and waking up. Do you want to know what it is? The matrix is everywhere. It is all around us. Even now in this very room. You can see it when you look out your window or when you turn on your television. You can feel it when you go to work, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes to blind you from the truth. What truth? 
you are a slave, Neo. Like everyone else, you were born into bondage, born into a prison that you cannot smell or taste or touch. A prison for your mind. Unfortunately, no one can be told what the Matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill, the story ends, you wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Remember, all I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. Blood of the Lamb washed down by the water of his word. I love that movie. I love all three of those movies. And I'm terrified of what they did to the fourth one. Because I've heard nothing good, nothing good about it. You see, in this verse, that word for wake up carries with it the idea of staying awake and not allowing ourselves to fall asleep. This isn't the idea of um, pulling an all-nighter because you procrastinated to do the things you know to do. I once stayed up all night to write a 10-page theology paper that I hadn't written over the course of the entire semester. It was the worst experience of my life. I was like, I don't care how many energy drinks you drink, nothing can make that experience comfortable. And as you're sitting there typing on your computer, you're like, what a terrible mistake I've made. It's not what we're talking about. We're not procrastinating. If anything, this has the idea of anticipating the arrival of something, good or bad, so as not to miss it. A good example of this is the story of Samson in the book of Judges, chapter 16. I'm not going to read you the whole story. It's worth reading on your own time. But for context, Samson has fallen for a Philistine woman named Delilah who was trying to trick him into giving up his strength. Pause. Samson was supposed to rescue the Israelites from the Philistines, not fall to their seduction. This also was not the first time that Samson had fallen for a Philistine woman. When we pick up the story in verse 15, Samson has already messed with her three times, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, and told her false secrets to his strength, which he promptly overcame, and as a result, one can only guess that he's developing a sense of overconfidence as a result. Verse 15, then Delilah pouted, how can you tell me I love you when you don't share your secrets with me? believe that's also a word from the Lord to the church. How can you tell me you love me when you won't share your secrets with me? 
You've made fun of me three times now, and you still haven't told me what makes you so strong. She tormented him with her nagging day after day until he was sick to death of it. Finally, Samson shared his secret with her, probably exasperated. My hair has never been cut, he confessed, for I was dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become as weak as anyone else. Delilah realized he had finally told her the truth, so she sent for the Philistine rulers. Come back one more time, she said, for he has finally told me a secret. So the Philistine rulers returned with the money in their hands. Delilah lulled Samson to sleep with his head in her lap, and then she called in a man to shave off the seven locks of his hair. In this way, she began to bring him down, and his strength left him. Then she cried out, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. When he woke up, he thought, I will do as before and shake myself free. But he didn't realize the Lord had left him. So the Philistines captured him and gouged out his eyes. They took him to Gaza, where he was bound with bronze chains, chains and forced to grind grain in the prison. Really a super uplifting story. Samson's strength was taken. This was something that Pastor Glenn said to me a few weeks ago. So I'm going to give him credit. Samson's strength was taken away from him while he was asleep, not while he was awake. While he was asleep. More importantly, he had been lured to sleep, mistaking the patience of God for the approval of God, because unfortunately, this was not the first time that Samson had violated the Nazarite vow. If you know anything about the Nazarite vow, it consists of three things. Number one, you don't cut your hair. Number two, you don't drink anything that came from grapes. And number three, you don't touch anything that is dead. The very first story that we encounter of Samson is him grabbing a jawbone from a dead donkey. He's already violated it. Ecclesiastes 8.11 says this, when a crime is not punished quickly, people feel it is safe to do wrong. But even though a person sins a hundred times and still lives a long time, I know that those who fear God will be better off. The wicked will not prosper. America, the wicked will not prosper. For they do not fear God. Their days will never grow long like the evening shadows. Church, I know it has been frustrating to know the promises of God for our nation and not see them come to fulfillment. I understand that it is exasperating and exhausting. But if you know that one thing, know this. God is not slow as some consider slowness. He is coming and he is not finished with America. The idea of waking up can best be compared to a Twitter meme, I was today years old. It is an online expression typically used in the title of a post or a discussion thread for those of you that don't use Twitter very often. I commend you, actually, for that. Techno dad, looking at you. So they put it in the title, and it introduced an interesting fact or a piece of trivia previously unknown to the poster in a similar vein to the phrase, did you know, or 
today I learned, right? Because us millennials, we have to find, up new, find new and clever ways to say the same thing we've been saying for centuries. So today, I was today years old. So here's a couple of examples for you. First, I was today years old when I found out that the division symbol, so everybody can see the division symbol in your mind, it, it should be coming up on the screen, is just a blank fraction with the dots replacing the numerator and the denominator. Mind blown. Next one. Just found out that when someone tells you to break a leg in an audition, it's because they're hoping you end up in the cast. My head is exploding. Hopefully not in real life. I was today years old when I found out that the first episode of a show is called a pilot because it's the first time they're on air. I was today years old when I found out that when someone says, hold your horses, which I heard many times directed at me when I was living at home, they're telling me to be stable. Last one. Oh, no, there's two more. I'm sorry. If you replace the W in where, what, and when with a T, you answer the question. There, that, and then. Last one. I was today years old when I found out that SpongeBob's parents are dry are dried out sponges, not baked chocolate chip cookies. That was super confusing for many years. I was so thankful this just set everything right as soon as I saw that. I was like, oh, okay. All is right with the world. In order for us to strengthen what remains, we must recognize the current state of where we are. Much like knowing the destination does us no good if we have no idea where we are, I believe that Jesus is calling his bride to admit where she's fallen so that he can bring clarity to where he desires to strengthen her. This requires two things. Number one, it requires for us to have the humility to ask God to reveal the truth to us, like it says in Romans 8, or excuse me, uh, John 8, 32. You will know the truth, and the truth will wake, set you free. Truth that is unknown does not set you free. You have to know it. And secondly, it requires the spirit of wisdom and revelation, like it talks about in Ephesians 1.17. Because when God turns the lights on, there's no denying it. Second, after we've recognized, it's time to rewind. Rewind. Now, I grew up in the era of a VCR, that's as far back as I go. So I know that there are other forms of technology that predate that. I don't know what they are. I've never seen them. But once we have truly recognized where we are, we are positioned to do the next thing, to go back. This idea of going back is not going back to where we were comfortable. That's not where we're headed. It's going back to review what's happened in order to receive insight and instruction on how to proceed. Jesus used this exact words when he was talking to his disciples in Mark 8. Jesus has just been talking to the religious leaders who had been demanding a sign to validate Jesus' ministry to them. Side note, the political and the religious spirit will always demand authentication as an attempt to disprove the calling of someone. 
They have no desire to see the truth of someone's calling. They just want to have the reality of, well, they're not really from God. I don't have to listen to them. I can continue doing what I want to do. For more on the religious spirit, please read Pastor Nate's book, The Religious Spirit. It's really good. After this exchange, Jesus gets into the boat, which is where we pick it up in verse 13. So he got back into the boat and left them, and he crossed to the other side of the lake. But the disciples had forgotten to bring any food. God bless them. I'm sure Peter was at the head of forgetting the food. They had only one loaf of bread with them in the boat, probably Peter's loaf. As they were crossing the lake, Jesus warned them, watch out, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. Now, I just want to say, Jesus is notorious throughout the Gospels for just saying things with zero context. Just like saying, like coming up to a guy at the pool of Siloam and with not a hello, not a how are you, just do you even want to be healed? Just so abrupt. So he just like, watch out for the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees. So immediately their brains start racing. At this, they began to argue with each other, which they were known to do, because they hadn't brought any bread. Jesus knew what they were saying, so he said, why are you arguing about having no bread? If I'm the disciples, I'm like, why wouldn't we be arguing about having no bread? You just talked to us about bread. Don't you know or understand even yet? Are your hearts too hard to take it in? You have eyes, can't you see? You have ears, can't you hear? Here's the key phrase. Don't you remember anything at all? When I fed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread, how many baskets of leftovers did you pick up afterwards? 12, they said. And when I fed the 4,000 with seven loaves, how many large baskets of leftovers did you pick up? Seven, they said. Don't you understand yet? He asked them. You see, what God has already done for us in the past is instructive for what he wants to do in the future. Not in terms of a formula, but in terms of a pattern. Last year, Pastor Nate preached a message on the patterns of revival. They follow a pattern. They don't all look the same. What happened in the Hebrides did not look like what happened in Azusa, but it followed a similar pattern. The best way to think about going back and remembering in receiving instruction, is to think about it in terms of film study like what they do in football. Oh yeah, we're going there. So, for those of you that don't know, football teams will go back and they will watch tape on the game they just played to find out what they did wrong and what they did well. But then they will also watch tape on the upcoming opponent so they know what things they can take advantage of and what things they should avoid so as not to get their butts kicked. Some guys watch a lot of film, but they don't know what they're looking at. Others may watch just the mandatory amount and still gain tons of knowledge. Viewing film <clears throat> or watching and understanding what you are seeing are two completely different things in the world of the NFL. Players that grasp those concepts and can differentiate them early in their careers are bound to have success. Proper film study is vital for any NFL team to win. As a Cleveland Browns fan, I can attest to this reality because I'm pretty sure they're not watching film. <clears throat> we won't talk about the New York Jets. 
players that can take what they see on the screen and then transfer that onto the field have their eyes on the prize. You see, Georgia did not avoid watching the tape of them losing in in the SEC championship game to Alabama. They went back and they watched it because they knew something had to change. I want to show you another video of some tape that I think you might find a little interesting. Show us exactly what did and did not get happened. Let me get there. my Kenny the Jet, Kenny the Jet to the screen. Okay, so this play is all about the Cowboys' lack of awareness and a lack of execution. So in this situation, I want to point this out. 14 seconds. This is the max that I could get to. I prefer 16 seconds play call wise, but 14 seconds is the bare minimum near death experience I need to execute a play. First step when you're teaching this play, no matter who the ball carrier is, he needs to understand that they have to at some point declare themselves down. That extra two or three yards that they might try to get is not worth it because it's going to take an extra second or two. Somebody has to declare themselves down, get down to make sure that you save the seconds on the, the clock. So there's 10 seconds right now. Dak Prescott, go down around the 30-yard line. Instead, you get to the around 24, 25-yard line. There's an extra second. That matters. Second step is this, and Coach just talked about it. Get up and find the official and give him the football. Larry Fitzgerald style, right? Usually Larry Fitzgerald would be running in here getting the football right now. Right now, Dak Prescott's going around going, okay, Bionic is trying to get the football. Dak doesn't know what to do. You run to the official and hand him the ball. You do not toss the ball to the official. It's the heat of the moment. They're 60 years old. Don't trust them to catch the ball. You go and hand it to him like a leader would do. Now, the third thing is this. You got to get into a legal formation. Everybody with urgency get into a legal formation. I just want you guys to watch some of these players on offense. Tell me if these guys look like they have urgency. Like these guys don't even have any urgency. They look unprepared for the moment right now. No one's running, getting lined up. That's how you look like as a football team that's unprepared. Now I want to pause it here. In this moment, you should also teach your football team of the 9-1-1 situation. Hey guys, we called the play. The ideal moment didn't happen. We lost a couple seconds on the clock. You should, as a quarterback, be running down. 9-1-1, 9-1-1. The spike is off. Everybody now turns into Hail Mary mode. We should be running Hail Mary down the field. Three seconds every time the ball gets snapped. It has to be two seconds off the clock. In that moment, your break even should be three seconds. Dak Prescott, if you get to line of scrimmage and it doesn't happen ideally, three seconds, you should be communicating to everybody the Hail Mary is on, and then we at least have a shot to win the football game. The Cowboys showed poor preparation, they showed poor awareness, and they showed poor execution. This is not on the officials. This is on the players and the coaching staff to be ready for the moment. That's exceptionally well done. Okay, I agree with everything he said. For those of you that are Cowboys fans, sorry, not sorry. Dan Orlovsky has a quote. That guy that was, I I showed you that video for a couple reasons. Number one, I have the same energy level as Dan Orlovsky. Like, that would be me. Like, we got screens. Just losing his mind. So good. I, I, can we get a touch screen? That would be great. I would love that. Dan Orlovsky says this, we don't rise to the level of our expectation. We fall to the level of our preparation. It would be nice if the Cowboys knew what they were doing. But they didn't. Because here's the other thing to keep in mind. Here's another quote from Dan Orlovsky. 
We don't practice until we get it right one time. We practice until we can't get it wrong. Guys, as we follow Jesus, it's not enough to do the right thing once and think, okay, I got it. We continue to do the same thing consistently, frequently, over a long period of time until we cannot get it wrong. Because it's not about how we feel. It's about what he said. Go back and review where God has shown up for you over the last day, over the last week, over the last month, over the last few years. Ask him what he was trying to reveal to you about himself and or about yourself. Graham Cook says that the two best questions we can ever ask the Holy Spirit, we find them right after the day of Pentecost. What does this mean and what must I do? What does this mean and what must I do? In every situation, good or bad, because everything is a teaching moment. Third, after we've recognized and we've rewound the tape, we return. Revelation 3, the last portion of verse 3. Repent and turn to me again. This means turn to Jesus. I think sometimes we focus too much on what we are turning away from and not enough on the object of our turning. Abraham turned to see a ram caught in the thicket, not just away from sacrificing his son Isaac. Moses turned to look at the burning bush, not just away from tending his father-in-law's sheep. And in the book of Revelation, John turned to see the one who was speaking to him, not just away from worshiping in the spirit on the Lord's day. So what are we turning to? Because guys, I could stand up here this morning and talk ad nauseum about all the things we're supposed to look, turn away from. Chances are high, we all know those things. I don't know about you, but I don't usually need somebody to come along and tell me what I did wrong. I probably know already. Now, there are times where I'm in deception and I have people in my life who are like, hey, I don't know if you know this, but that's not okay. And it requires humility to say, you're right, I was wrong, will you forgive me? Something I learned from mom and dad. It's not enough to say I'm sorry. That's the equivalent of saying my bad. Ask for forgiveness. That's not even in my notes. But here's what we're turning to. Acts 2.42, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper and to prayer. That passage goes on to detail the blueprint of the early church. These verses show us the thing that Jesus is looking for in his bride before he comes. This isn't to say that we don't engage in things that are outside of this. But if we stray from the original blueprint, we risk being involved in things that are good, but not necessarily God. As I was pulling in the parking lot this morning, I felt like the Lord said this, because I was asking him, I was like, God, what do you consider dead? And he said, anything that didn't require my Holy Spirit to start or doesn't require my Holy Spirit to continue is dead. If there are things in our lives that don't need the Holy Spirit, if you could do them without him, it might be time to ask Holy Spirit if he wants you to continue. Amen. 
I would also say that it is important for us to return to who we are as a nation as well and to remember the headwaters of the streams of liberty that gave birth to our country. Just to give you a sampling, George Washington said this, it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits, and humbly to implore his protection and favor. It was our first president. Samuel Adams, a revolutionary in his own right, said this, We have this day restored the sovereign to whom all men ought to be obedient. He reigns in heaven and with a propitious eye beholds his subjects, assuming that freedom of thought and dignity of self-direction which he bestowed upon them. From the rising to the setting of the sun, may his kingdom come. John Adams said this, as the safety and prosperity of nations ultimately and essentially depend on the protection and blessing of Almighty God, and the national acknowledgement of this truth is not only an indispensable duty which the people owe to him. Our first chief justice, John Jay, the Bible is the best of all books, for it is the word of God, and it teaches us the way to be happy in this world and in the next. Benjamin Rush, a signer of the Declaration of Independence, says that the gospel of Jesus Christ prescribes the wisest rules for just conduct in every situation of life. I love that last line. Nothing but his blood will wash away my sins. I rely exclusively upon it. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Do not tell me that our nation was not founded on Christian principles. When we have people saying stuff like that, I don't think so. Over my dead body. When I was a kid, my parents and I took a trip to New York City. Now, getting to the city wasn't hard. Getting out of the city, that was another story entirely. By the way, I've forgiven both of you for what I'm about to talk about. The highway system in the city of New York, if you haven't been there, is an absolute maze. It is designed to penalize people who don't know what they're doing with tolls that force you to pay exorbitant amounts of money. In an attempt to find a very specific highway that would ultimately lead us out of the city, my dad did something that not a lot of guys do. He actually asked for directions and asked the attendant at the first toll booth how we could get home. The attendant politely gave him the information, told him to go down this exit, and off we went. Except, I don't know what happened between that toll booth and that exit, but we passed that exit. And, on we, and we found ourselves sitting at yet another toll booth. We asked the same question, given clear direction, went off to a new target exit. Yet again, however, we missed our exit, and we entered a third toll booth. Same story, directions, distraction, disappointment. This continued for three more tolls. Until finally my dad had had enough. The seventh time was indeed the number of completion for him. 
Because upon becoming aware of the reality that we were going to be paying yet another toll, I felt the car moving in a direction that I had never felt it move on a highway while I was inside up to that point. Reverse. We had rounded a blind curve, and we are now backing up that turn. Much to the chagrin of my mother, who was shouting information at my father, I think she believed that he was unaware of this information. It roughly sounded something like this. I bore that child. That's our son back there. Apparently, this information was lower on the priority scale than the upcoming toll because the car continued its backwards trajectory and we miraculously avoided another toll, an accident, and a spectacular loss of life. I will say that when I woke up a few hours later, having fallen asleep at some point following that excitement, I awoke to some pretty intense fellowship in the front seat. (laughs) Worship team, you can come on up. You see, guys, it's not so much about avoiding the tolls as it is on focusing on the right exit. In the passage from Acts, where are there opportunities to press in for more? Is it the apostles' teaching? Maybe it's listening to sermons or reading Pastor Nate's book that I talked about. Or maybe it's listening to the sermons that our pastors are listening to. Fellowship, are you in a home group? If not, can I encourage you to do that? Breaking bread, do you go out for lunch and coffee with the people that you don't know? Do you take communion here or in your own home? Prayer. That's a pretty easy one. We're the Lake Travis prayer room. Come to a live set. Tuesdays, Fridays. Are you meeting together? Have you found an opportunity to serve? Personally, I would encourage you to find ways to simplify your relationship with Jesus. Ask the Holy Spirit what he's desiring from you, not comparing yourself to what he's asked from someone else. Guys, there's many ways that you can apply a message like this one. But I want to tell you a quick story about the city of Sardis. We read from the letter that was written to her at the church in Sardis. But the city of Sardis has a rather unfortunate end. It sat high up on a cliff, had strong foundations, high walls. And the people inside began to feel like, this is impenetrable. No enemy invader will ever come inside these walls. The problem was that no one was doing the regular maintenance and upkeep of those walls and of that foundation. Over time, the walls eroded and the cracks grew bigger, large enough to where a human could actually slide inside the cracks. Meanwhile, the people inside became complacent Apathetic, lazy, cocky, arrogant. Not unlike the Dallas Cowboys fans. Um, So sorry. Um, One night, an enemy invaded. They climbed the walls. They snuck in through the cracks. And they positioned themselves in various strategic locations around the city with their weapons fixed on the main trade thoroughfares throughout. 
When the people of Sardis awoke the following morning, it was too late. They had already been overrun. I believe that the Lord has used the events of the last two years to shake his church, like it talks about in Haggai chapter two. He is coming to shake everything that can be shaken so that what cannot be shaken remains. Many of you in this room have been shaken over the last two years. Can I tell you something this morning? You remain. You sit here before me this morning and you sit here before him, the one who has eyes that blaze with fire. You remain. Despite the enemy trying to take you out, you remain. So this morning, I don't know where you are. If you are ready to strengthen what has remained over the last two years, then I would invite you to stand. And maybe in addition to wanting to strengthen those things in yourself, you actually want to galvanize those very things here in this house. As a member of the staff, I want to tell you, we need you. We cannot do what God has put on this house to do in our region without you. We need what you carry. If I could invite the ministry teams to come forward. Pastor Nate, Pastor Glenn, Pastor Kyle, Pastor Brooke, elders. If you're in the Sunday school class, if you go to Pastor Nate's home group or Pastor Glenn's home group, one of the things I love about being a part of a body like this is that John Wimber said, everybody gets to play. Everybody gets to play. It's not just the pastors and the elders that can lay hands. We all can do it. Guys, can I just tell you, it's such an honor to serve you. You provoke me. You provoke me. You provoke our staff. We recognize like we can't stay where we're at because our people are nipping at our heels. We've got to keep going. That's you this morning and you want to rededicate to strengthening what remains. For those of you that stand, can I invite you to come forward to the altar? And if you need prayer for anything else, our altar is open. We're about five minutes over, but I want to just pray for us. Father, I thank you today that when you come to point out what remains, when you come to your bride, it's not to shame her. It's because you long to strengthen her. You long to gather her like chicks under your wings. You are a good father. And I thank you that the one who we are going to marry is the very one who makes us ready for the marriage. 
we bless you today. And we say yes to strengthening what remains. We're not going to ignore that it was hard. But we are going to choose instead to say that it is worth it if it is for you. We bless you, Jesus. God bless River in the Hills and God bless these United States of America. If you need to go, you're dismissed. We're gonna have the worship team just play and sing over us. God bless you. God bless you. Have an amazing Sunday. Thanks for listening to the weekly sermon. To download the notes and slides for this message, visit our website, riverinthehills.com. If you would like to partner with us in moving God's heart and changing the world, please subscribe to our podcast, leave a review, and share this episode with a friend.